You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Greetings, everyone. You've found the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center podcast. I'm your host, Luke Vanderlinden. Welcome to the show. As always, thanks for joining us. You know, we at the RHISAC are incredibly lucky. We have the most fascinating members. When we get a chance to work with them in one of our working groups or to have the odd check-in call, or best of all, I get out to one of our in-person events and get to meet them in person, it's always a great opportunity to learn about some amazing people, their experiences, their outlook, and of course, the work they do. Just fascinating. I get to speak to two such members today. Rafi Anor is an information security engineer at Colgate-Palmolive. Specifically, she's in the Operation Technology, or OT, division. Rafia is our member spotlight for this episode. I'm looking forward to discussing her career path, intelligence sharing at the RHISAC, and the trajectory of cybersecurity, as she sees it. But first, I'm joined by Dom Lutz, also an information security engineer, but at Urban. Urban owns a number of brands, including Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Free People. I got to meet Dom at one of those in-person events, our regional workshop earlier this year hosted by Rafia's employer, Colgate Palmolive, at their headquarters in New Jersey. Dom's been working on an interesting project, kind of in his free time, in uncovering how threat actors are using homographs to spoof domains, another tiny yet very effective way for the bad guys to trick people into clicking on or responding to a link or an email. And of course, we all know how creative threat actors can be, whether it's using techniques like homographs or current events or even something as simple as the season that we're in. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, summer's here or technically almost here. Lots of us hit the road for well-deserved vacations or holidays. There are, of course, threat actors taking advantage of this behavior. Last month, researchers reported a phishing campaign where threat actors sent emails to users claiming to be from quote-unquote HR departments and providing the users with links to submit annual leave requests. The campaign's infection chain proceeds as follows. The user is informed via email that they must log on to their HR portal to verify their dates of annual leave. Once the user clicks the URL in the email, they'll be directed to a login page. The login page mimics the target employee's company login page with branding and colors. Once the user has entered and submitted their credentials to the form, it will actually fail on the first two attempts. This is a technique used by the threat actor to ensure the user is typing the password correctly or to use a different password in an attempt to gather multiple credentials. At the third attempt, the credentials will appear to have been processed successfully and the user is redirected to the company's legitimate homepage. We go into more detail about this phishing campaign at the RHISAC blog. That's actually where I'm reading this report. You can find it at rhisac.org slash blog, or just go to our homepage and up in the navigation, click on resources and blog. There's a lot of great stuff in there, particularly recently. In addition to the piece on that vacation-themed phishing, there is another report that provides insight into key trends in the increasing prevalence of sophisticated advanced persistent threats, or APTs, targeting small and medium-sized businesses. A few key takeaways of their report includes how APT actors use compromised small and medium business infrastructure in phishing campaigns. They're not keeping things up to date, and this could be exploited. How APT actors engage in targeted state-aligned financially motivated attacks 
against small and medium-sized financial services businesses, and particularly of interest how APT actors target SMBs to initiate supply chain attacks, so third-party risk. These and lots of other great articles can be found at the RHISAC blog at rhisac.org slash blog, or again, in the navigation, click on resources and then blog. As always, if you care to opine about the podcast or even the blog, shoot us an email to podcast at rhisac.org, or if you're a member, you can try to find me on Slack or Member Exchange. Right, and now I'm joined by Dom Lutz, information security engineer at Urban. I got to meet Dom at a couple earlier this year at a, one of our regional workshops that was hosted by Colgate Palmolive in New Jersey, uh, where he presented on this topic. Welcome to the RHISAC podcast, Dom. Thanks for having me, Luke. Excellent. We're going to be talking about homographs in domain spoofing today. What does that mean? Tell me all about it. So before I get started, I just want to say that my views are my own, my research is my own, and it's no reflection of my company. Yes, thank you Thank you for making that clear. I forgot I forgot to point that out. Uh, no problem. Uh, now that's out of the way, though. So homograph domains, uh, what are they? How does this affect us? Um, you know, a little one-minute overview. A homograph is when a set of characters looks like another set of characters. You know, I think the easiest example for people to understand is when... A lowercase l looks like an uppercase i, or when a zero might look like an uppercase o. In the context of domain spoofing, it's been seen to be used when there will be a letter from a non-English alphabet uh, used in substitution for an English letter. So you might have an a with an accent in place of the English a. So to give an example. I'm not sure what the domain name for RHISAC is, but you might have RHISAC.com and all Latin characters, you know, ASCII characters. A homograph domain would be RHISAC where the A has a little accent over it. Gotcha. And uh, by the way, it's RHISAC.org in case any of our listeners want to visit. Although I think we own the .com just because we own, you know, as many organizations do, dozens of names. So so th- this sounds like a lot like typo squatting, or at least what we think we know about typo squatting, but there seems to be a little difference to it there is um so typo squatting you know it usually relies on a misspelling of a word or adding an extra character at the end but with this uh the goal is usually to imitate the actual domain name as closely as possible so it should look visually very similar uh, just like with typo squatting but the goal with this is to make it look even closer than a typo squatted domain because it's easier to notice an extra character than it is to maybe notice a dot over a letter. Right, right. I guess that makes sense. So you, you mentioned A with an accent. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when I insert, when I'm typing uh, the name of one of our members who lives in France that I have to go in and insert, insert symbol, what are some of the common characters that we might find that threat actors would use? So currently, you'll find... Uh, You'll find characters from Latin-based alphabets. In the past, you might find, you know, a Russian character, a Cyrillic character or something put in uh, with Latin characters. But nowadays, thanks to some protections that have been put in place, you'll just find characters from Latin-based alphabets usually. So, for instance, 
uh, French, Polish, Spanish. That's right. I, I remember in your presentation, you, you kept picking on this L, Polish L character. I, I do like the Polish L. Um, it's, for those of you that don't know, Polish uh, alphabet has an L with a slash through it. And I did some proof of concept work using that character. Right. And you found like a huge number of Fortune 500 companies have an L in their name, and then it's not registered. They don't have that domain registered with that L in it. Well, I can neither confirm nor deny which <laughs> companies I looked at, um, but I found that a good amount of companies and organizations are susceptible to that. I don't know if you can answer this either, but what kind of domains or which domains are commonly spoofed? So the type of domains that are commonly spoofed are the type of domains that are commonly targeted with phishing attacks. Really, it's you know payment processors, tech companies, business tools, if you think of a major organization where you get emails from them, then chances are they're going to be a target. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess one of the big differences between this and typo squatting is that typo squatting is more reactive. They're counting on me to type in something, a domain wrong, if I'm, especially if I'm navigating to it on the internet. This would be more proactive on the behalf of the threat actor. Like They're using this to try to trick people in, in, uh, in, in email attacks and things like that. Exactly. and. So there's a few main uh, threat models involving homograph domain attacks that I've been focused on. One of them might be using a homograph domain to spoof a company and then send emails to potential customers or victims. Um, another would be using a homograph domain to attack companies within the company that's being spoofed. And then there's also... So, you know, those are just more traditional social engineering attempts. But then what's recently been seen the last few years uh, more so is using homograph domains as a tactic to deploy malware. Just like any, any kind of email attack, right? Get people to click on things. Uh, so it is being weaponized is what you're saying. It's not something that you've just discovered, but it is out there being weaponized. No. So th this has actually been around for... 20 some odd years it's been in academic papers for that long it's been with you know talked about within the cybersecurity community and you know back 20 years ago it wasn't weaponized as much as it is today but it is still relatively niche so it it does seem since it's been around for decades and it, it seems like something that should have been anticipated frankly shouldn't there be protections in place prevent spoofing like this? Like everybody from registrars to browsers should have ways to protect, right? Yeah. And so there are some mitigations currently in place. Um, Unicode is the big one. It takes a, a string containing Unicode characters and then it basically uh, transforms it to a string that just has ASCII characters. So instead of uh, rhisac.org with an accent, it would be xn dash dash and then the ASCII character is already in place, followed by uh, another substring of ASCII characters. I know that's a little bit in the weeds, but this is a hard topic to talk about without... Without the visual, right? So for people like me, dumb guys like me, it makes it from pr a pretty URL into an ugly URL and maybe draws my attention. Exactly. It's uh, how I like to think about it. It turns it from something that you know, your grandma wouldn't notice to something your grandma would notice if a 
if an attacker was trying to fish. So uh, with that, with Punicode, that should solve the problem, right? In theory, but the problem with Punicode is it has to be implemented. So, you know, your email applications, uh, your business communication applications, your browsers have to reliably display Punicode for it to be effective. Through my research, I've found most of them don't display Punicode. They'll display it if you have, you know, a mix of Latin characters and then Cyrillic characters. But if you just have a domain name typed with Polish characters, chances are the application will not display it as Punicode. Wow. So it protects us from the characters least likely to be used in, in this kind of kind of trickery. Exactly. Because, uh, you know, at one point in time, people were able to register domains with different scripts, you know, such as Latin and Cyrillic. Nowadays, that's prevented when you actually go to register a domain with mixed scripts. It comes back with an error, and it doesn't let you register it. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's one other way to protect, but still not all. If it was all Latin characters, it's still not going to stop you. Exactly. So it prevents you know some of the more blatant attacks, but there's still quite a number of you know potential homograph domains out there. So, so what did, what can companies do? What can individuals do? What can companies do to try to protect themselves? So I like to say that companies can socialize this issue, but I realize that's a little idealistic. You know, people forget about it, goes under the radar for a few more years, and then it'll pop up again. But really, what security practitioners can do now is they can add in more monitoring and prevention. So they can look at email headers, for instance, within their organization. Um, if you see the prefix xn dash dash in an email header, then chances are that uh, domain name it's coming, the email is coming from, or is attached to, uh, is, includes Unicode. Now, not all Unicode-containing domain names are bad, but you can throw in some monitoring and then check that list. Uh, you can also look at DNS requests, because DNS requests, they do not translate Punicode to uh, the Unicode display. They don't render it that way. So again, you'll see that XN dash dash. Um, so if you take a closer look within your organization at traffic going to XN dash dash domains or emails coming in from XN dash dash domains, then you can really see if anyone in your company uh, is associating with these homograph domains. So there's not one tool right now that'll that you know a company can install to to solve all the problems, but there's a number of a number of techniques they can use to kind of guess which uh, what what traffic and and what what issues might exist. Exactly. There there are some tools out there that have a very limited scope, or you know they'll pick up ten homograph domains, but there's no de facto tool for preventing this or addressing this. Okay. Wow. Well, this is um, not something that we think about on a regular basis, but something that you stumbled upon, again, in your own time and not on behalf of your employer. Uh, and you know, I want to thank you for bringing it to our attention, both at the workshop and now on the, on the podcast. Of course. And uh, one last thing. I, sometimes I forget to mention this because it seems very simple, but I think this might be my most 
important point is what security practitioners can do to address this at a company-wide level is train your employees. Sure. Throw in security a 30-second. Exactly. A little 30-second snippet on this can help. You know, we can't really quantify how much it'll help, but the hope is that it'll prevent at least one attack. Right. And that's, that's you can only hope, right? Security awareness is what it is. Exactly. Dom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for all you do for your employer, Urban, and for the RHI SAC. And, and uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon. I'm joined now by Rafia Noor, who's an information security engineer in the OT division of Colgate Palmolive. Thank you very much for joining us in the podcast, Rafia. Thank you for having me, Luke. It's a pleasure. I probably messed up your title there, so give me a little uh, give me a little bit about what you do at Colgate Palmolive and uh, and what fills your day. I am the OT team uh, security team lead here at Colgate. Um, should I elaborate a little bit on what ICS or OT security is in general for the audience? Or yeah, I think I think they would appreciate it. I would appreciate it too. All right. So uh, OT or operation technology is basically um, hardware, software to control our industrial equipment. You know all the machineries that running the plants. So centrifuges to conveyor belts to robotics—they're all part of OT. Now at Colgate, my team and I are responsible for ensuring that our manufacturing plants and facilities are protected. So our team is fairly new. So a lot of our focus is on establishing the fundamentals. So get, getting the basics, uh, uh, getting asset visibility, etc. Now that we are getting a good handle of that, uh, my personal focus is on improving our vulnerability management program for the plants. That means like managing vulnerabilities, not only for traditional ID servers and application, but also taking a risk-based approach and managing our um, PLCs, HMIs, thin clients, line equipment that, you know, still have some uh, Windows XP, Windows 7 machines, vision systems, IoT devices, and other connected devices that you see on the plant force. So it's not an easy task. The breadth is quite quite deep. In addition to vulnerability management, like I said, we're in we're pretty much in charge of our entire manufacturing facility security. So we're also working on improving our detection capabilities, incident response uh, preparedness uh, for the manufacturing environment specifically. Uh, as a team, we're running our first IR uh, tabletop for OT. That is a big big deal. We're excited for that. So Colgate Palmolive hosted uh, one of our regional workshops a couple of weeks ago uh, at their offices, their headquarters in New Jersey. You weren't there because you uh, are remote, uh, as we discussed. But uh, part of that um, workshop was we got a tour of their uh, some of their manufacturing facilities on site, which are very, very minor. It's just to make prototypes and things like that. And it's kind of a proof of concept facility. But your manufacturing facilities are all around the globe, I imagine. So this is, this is kind of a big job from your perch in an office in the U.S., for sure. So um, our team is actually global. We have a Mumbai. Uh, we have some members in Mumbai, and then here at the U.S. and 
we're all all remote at EOS currently. Um, so yes, it's a global team. We work across different regions, different time zones with different technologies at time that's acquired over different decades. So it, it, it's a challenging role for sure, but exciting nonetheless. If these facilities were set up at different times, obviously with different technology, uh, you're trying to get a bunch of stuff that maybe wasn't intended to work together to work well together right? and to be protected together. You hit it right in the head. Yes. So how did you get into that specifically? Was it your plan? Did you have a specialty in OT or was it something you kind of fell into from another cybersecurity area? Yes, the other way around. I started off as an automation systems engineer working at the field, um, you know, programming PLCs, HMIs, uh, DCS systems, also like improving process control systems, um, commissioning um, in the field. Then maybe about four or five years ago, I was um, chatting with one of my former directors at a different role, and he mentioned that he is putting together an ICS security team, and it's an oil and gas, so they're a little bit more advanced at times than us here in the manufacturing. Uh, but he was putting together an ICS security team, and it sounded fascinating, and uh, one thing led to another, and here I am. That's interesting. So you come into it in a different direction. So you might be more aware of where you might be accidentally creating friction and and trying to work toward the business ends and not just the security ends. Yeah, so I think that's one of my strengths when it comes to, like, you know, this unique environment because it's both IT and OT working together. My background in uh, in ICS being on the field and plants and in um, oil and gas environment, like I understand the struggle. I went through that. So I think it puts me in a unique position when I can translate, like, you know, the need for the plant folks uh, to IT security and uh, vice versa. So kind of a mediator at times. Excellent. So many times you've said how interesting, oh, I thought the security thing might be interesting. What what is the most interesting thing about your job and and, um, what do you enjoy most? So what I enjoy most is probably the uniqueness of it. And no two days are alike. The challenges are hard, but they are also just as rewarding when you uh, make progress in them. Like like I mentioned, our team is pretty new, right? So which means um, I'm contributing how the OT security program shapes here in um, Colgate. I, I can actually see our vision coming to life as we are implementing new technologies or building new procedures and processes. And there's just a lot of room to grow in this space uh, and, and within Colgate because there is no short of security measures we need to take. And it's very cross-functional. So I get, uh, I touch it like a multitude of discipline on a daily basis, right? I get to collaborate with other teams, not just within like cybersecurity. So we have our individual, you know, IM group. You have been to the RHISAC program here at Pascali. So you saw it's a, it's a pretty good size security team. We have m- multiple functions. So I get to work cross-functional with them, but not just them, but with IT supply chain and operations. That's really enjoyable. So you get to touch a lot of different things. That's great. So you, um, I guess, you weren't, I assume, part of the decision process to join the RHI SAC. Colgate's only been a member for a couple of years. How did you discover where you could benefit from RHI SAC membership and, and where are you most active in our community? How do you use the membership most often in your role? I actually was part of 
a different ISEC before joining to Colgate. So I was familiar with the concept and it's always been um, great, um, great communities. Was that the ONG ISEC? It was. Yes. We, we work closely. There's about two dozen ISECs in the National Council of ISECs. So we, we work with each other when, when, we see, when we see the need. So. Actually, when I first joined our CISO, um, Alex Schuckman mentioned that, um, you know, Colgate is the part of Irish ISEC. So I was excited to be a part of it. And um, maybe last year, or it was late 2021, Susie Square, the uh, president of uh, RH ISAC, put out a call for to participate in the OT steering committee. So I jumped at the opportunity. And um, since then, I've been part of that committee, you know, participating in working sessions and uh, roundtables, um, special interest groups. That's been a great learning opportunity for me as well. That's great. I, you know, honestly, we appreciate your work on that committee. You know, our core members are retailers, obviously, so companies that have a direct relationship with consumers and have consumer data. But as the ecosystem and as the definition of retail kind of grows, we find more and more that we not only want to serve, you know, traditional stores, but also obviously e-commerce, and we've grown to include hospitality and restaurants, but now also the companies that make the products that are purchased by our, by our other members. Uh, and so Colgate's not our, our only um, consumer goods manufacturer. So, you know, as, as an active member of the leadership of the OT working group, how do you find the intelligence or the information shared between that working group and kind of our regular information and collaboration outside of that working group? Um, how, how do you feel that those those work together? The IT section of it, like the traditional um, security sections, is like very robust and mature. Um, I, I see those uh, information always coming in. For OT, we're still kind of getting there. There are a lot more room to grow and collaborate. I think a lot of the cases at OT, we're still grappling with the basics, right? We are trying to get the basics of security. Threat intelligence is um, great to layer on top, but at times it's still um, not mature enough to deal with that, if that makes sense. Well, you know, like I said, I appreciate your help in, in helping the industry become more mature in, in its uh, preparations. And, uh, and if we, what we can do to help OT, we'll, we'll love to do. So um, I guess since you came into this career from a little from the side as opposed to uh, the, in a traditional way, what advice would you give others either who are starting off and want to get into cybersecurity or who may be considering coming in from, from a non-traditional way like you did? I mean, um, to be honest, I never feel like I'm in a position to um, dole advices out to people. Um, but from my experience, what I can say what worked for me is um, not be afraid to um, learn new things or taking risks, right? So I see a lot of people actually move to cybersecurity from other tangential disciplines like network, uh, help desk, stuff like that. But always try to learn, keep, be curious. There is no short of like, you know, free resources online nowadays. We have uh, webinars, conferences, but also vendors put out uh, free um, white papers and um, annual reviews, stuff like that. The other thing, like don't underestimate the power of soft skills, right? Like build genuine relationship. If there was anything to take away from my little background, if I always try to build relationships and keep in touch with folks I have worked with before and actually be friends, not just like coworkers, right? And 
that changed my life. If I wasn't chatting with my director that I worked like three years back before and didn't know, like, you know, he, he had this opportunity, um, I wouldn't be here where I am now. All right. So in the interest of building rapport, tell me a little bit about your hobbies, your interest outside of work. What keeps you busy when you're not working for Colgate? Oh, man. Um, to be honest, um, right now, I don't have a lot of time for hobbies. Um, <laughs> my husband and I recently had our first child. Um, well, congratulations. Thank you. She's eight months old, so we've been pretty busy with that. Um, like between uh, navigating parenthood, the pandemic has been a just crazy couple of years. Um, before the pandemic, though, like my husband and I used to love exploring national, um, you know, state parks, hiking, camping. I do miss those uh, adventures, but I look forward to um, getting back to them when the little one is a little older, maybe. Yes, we had our our first right before COVID started and then a second one about a year ago. And I think that has made a bigger impact on our lives than COVID did just because, you know, it it truly, totally changes your life. So uh, be a little visionary for me. Tell me what you think the trajectory of cybersecurity is going for like the next five, 10 years. Can you you prognosticate for us? Look in your crystal ball. Um, I mean, I may be a little biased here, right? Um, but one of the areas that I think is going to become more critical in the next decade is definitely um, the ICSOT security. We have to address the ITOT convergence. Um, it's not something that's far away. Um, it's already here, right? Um, as more critical systems like infrastructure and manufacturing processes become automated, interconnected, and um, whether bad actors specifically target those ICS um, systems or not, the consequence of the cyber attack can easily spill into the physical operation like we see with Colonial Pipeline, right? So we, we need robust security measures to protect these infrastructure in our just manufacturing physical world. The, given the importance, I think we'll see a lot of focus on like developing a specializing, uh, specialized cybersecurity solutions, and uh, we'll need expertise in that area. So, you know, how I moved from uh, the field to cybersecurity, we, we need to do those type of cross-functional training a lot and uh, build our expertise before, you know, it just becomes uh, even more critical. Also, you cannot forget AI, right? Right now, that's all, all, all the rage. I'm sure we'll see a lot more use of that. I'm excited to see how, how uh, the use of AI trends in cybersecurity. We're already hearing malware being, um, you know, coded and all that. But also, like, there is so much potential. Like, we can also automate our response, right? It's so powerful and so much opportunity for bad and for good. Exactly. So... That is definitely something that's on the pipeline, and we'll probably see a lot more coming up in the next few years. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Rafia Noor, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and join us on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person at our our, uh, summit in Dallas in October. Um, But uh, again, thank you very much, and and thanks for being such a good member and and helping out our OT group. Thank you for having me, and uh, likewise, hope to see you in October. You know, how Rafia described her own career trajectory and how it was non-traditional led me right back to the RHISAC blog I was talking about earlier. There's a great article there on how college graduates can attain a career in cybersecurity regardless of educational background. Rafia talked about soft skills, not necessarily being a coding or technical expert, and still playing a fundamental role in cybersecurity. 
Cybersecurity leaders are increasingly seeking candidates with varied skill sets to create a more all-encompassing, more holistic teams. Job candidates who view tasks from different perspectives are usually more effective at problem solving while embracing creativity. A willingness to learn and enthusiasm are also tremendously important and in demand. This article and lots of other great articles can be found at the RHISAC blog at rhisac.org slash blog. Or again, in the navigation, click on resources and then blog. We'll even do a version of our member profile of Rafia there. As always, a huge thank you to our own production team at the RHISAC, Annie Chambliss and Marisha Trushtanecki. And for making us sound good, the folks at CyberWire, our Jennifer Iben, Trey Hister, and Elliot Peltzman. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, stay safe out there. (laughs) 